there's not a lot of really subtle hints in the in the parsha. What we have is a long list of laws and treatises and judgments. Some of them are related to justice and courts. They're the rules that a Beit Din has to follow in order to be unbiased and fair and avoid offending the Lord. Deuteronomy, an example of that is Deuteronomy 24, and we don't have a screen going on right now, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and follow along. I'm reading from the King James because it's the authorized version. Deuteronomy 24, verses 16 through 18. The fathers shall not be put to death for the children. Neither shall the children be put to death for the fathers. Every man shall be put to death for his own sin. There shall not pervert the judgment of the stranger, nor of the fatherless, nor take a widow's raiment to pledge. But thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondsman in Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee thence. Therefore I command thee to do this thing. Now what we see here for judges to follow is a balance of justice and mercy. A judge is forbidden from biasing his judgment in favor of a rich man. Just as much he's forbidden from leniency towards a poor man, even though it salves his sense of pity. On the other hand, he's restrained from leaving the widow destitute. The Torah sets the judge a standard that's nearly unattainable. He walks the line between justice and compassion in a way that is honestly godlike if he does it right. How many judges have managed to do this? I think most honest judges strive for it. How many have attained it? Probably hardly any. Some of the laws we get, on the other hand, are related to moral growth. They give us specific exercises to grow our righteousness, grow our righteousness muscles. Just like when you exercise, you know, if you go for walks, it grows your legs muscles. If you press, bench press, it grows your arm muscles and your chest muscles. I don't know what they're called. I'm not a doctor nor a physical trainer. But we can train our righteousness muscles by doing small exercises in righteousness. Uh, one of them is the verse that uh, Norm read this morning. Thou shalt not see thy brother's ox nor his sheep go astray and hide thyself from them. Thou shalt in any case bring them again unto thy brother. And if thy brother be not nigh unto thee, or if thou know him not, so you if you know, know, know which brother it is, thou shalt bring it into thine own house, and it shall be with thee until thy brother seek after it, and thou shalt restore it to him again. In like manner shalt thou do with his ass, donkey. And so shalt thou do with his raiment, and all lost things of thy brothers which he hath lost, and thou hast found, shalt thou do likewise. Thou mayest not hide thyself. Thou shalt not see thy brother's ass or his ox fall down by the way and hide thyself from them. Thou shalt surely help him to lift them up again. You can't just say, not my problem. It is your problem. That's how you exercise righteousness, by exercising the fact that your brother, our mishpacha, the people around you are your problem, they're your responsibility. Torah here gives us an example of an everyday situation a moral dilemma that any of us might encounter and gives us practical rules to act compassionately. You notice we're not commanded to feel compassion. Not here, anyway. 
We are commanded to act, though, as if we felt compassion. Again, it's like walking daily on a treadmill until you need to run. When that time comes, your muscles know how to do it. If you act compassionately, then when the time comes that you need to feel compassion, you know how. Gives us small ways and makes able to succeed when the test comes. Now, the bulk of this lesson today is able to be a fairly short lesson because of our notes problems. That makes everyone happy. Yay, short lesson! The most surprising and possibly disturbing thing for a lot of people is how many of these laws and judgments are related to extremely personal affairs. Taurus gives us guidelines for dealing with issues that most of us would not feel comfortable talking to our therapist about. And it deals with them in a forthright, matter-of-fact fashion. Let's take just a couple of examples. Deuteronomy 22.5. We don't have it up there, but basically it's the verse that says, A man should not put on that which belongs to a woman. A woman should not put on that which belongs to a man. Cross-dressing is forbidden. I know that modern society doesn't really consider this to be a private issue. We have RuPaul's Drag Race piped into our cable television sets. And we're surrounded by people celebrating deviant sexuality, telling each other that it's unhealthy not to express it publicly. We, on the other hand, are called to be distinct from the world. And this is just one way. God either gave you two X chromosomes or an X and a Y. And with that comes a very specific set of rules and obligations, separate roles in society. Uh, Galatians 3.28 is a good example of that. Paul was correct in stating that before Adonai there is no difference between woman, man, Jew, Greek, as far as righteousness goes. But that doesn't nullify the various privileges and obligations placed upon each uh, different kind of person. placed upon the societal roles to which we're assigned. Another one. Men, as believers, we're forbidden from sexual relations with our father's wife. How many of you would think that would just be a given anyway? Okay. Now, we're not talking necessarily about your mother. That would be a whole different level of sick. But even if dad marries your hot babysitter after the divorce, she's off limits to you. Again, Not a situation that's really likely to come up amongst us, unless I'm entirely mistaken about all of you. (laughs) But it has been known to happen in congregations led by very righteous men. In congregations advised by Paul himself, this happened. Uh, Could someone read real quickly 1 Corinthians 5.1? Again, I was hoping to have this on the screen, but technical issues. (laughs) Don't worry about it. People should be able to dive into their Bibles as quickly, right? I should know it off the top of my head. Aaron, go ahead. This is a a situation that usually wouldn't leave the bedroom. 
Even those committing the act are ashamed of it and keep it secret. Paul says even the degenerate Gentiles don't talk about it, but it still happens. But it's not outside the purview of the creator of the universe. It is still part of the righteousness with which we need to deal. In Deuteronomy 23.1, we find that a man with injured private parts cannot enter into the congregation. Rashi's commentary is very graphic on this. He explains that this means a man marrying an Israelite woman and goes into a graphic description of what that injury specifically means and why it means he can't have children. It's not just something we discuss with visitors, though. Hi, welcome to a dot. How did you find us? Do your genitalia work properly? It's not likely to come up in conversation. One of the things that this commandment demonstrates is we do not have the luxury of compartmentalizing our righteousness. We all acknowledge there are some behaviors that are appropriate in private between a husband and a wife that would not be appropriate in public on the beach. But sin is sin, even if nobody else knows about it. Adonai sees all. He that keepeth Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. And he loves you, and he hates your sin, even when he's the only one aware of it. But is your sin only between you and Adonai? Again, take a moment and look at people around you. We here are part of a congregation. A mishpacha, a family. Beyond that, we're part of the body of Messiah. You are a part of the body of Messiah. With your own unique role to play. A dot is part of the body of Messiah with its own unique role. Messianic Judaism as a whole, Baptists, Pentecostals, Church of Christ, they are all part of the body with different roles to play. Bearing that in mind, the person sitting several chairs away from you is not unaffected by your secret sin, any more than any part of the body is unaffected by an infection. If you get a little paper cut on your right pinky finger and a flu virus finds its way into that little cut, is it just your pinky that has the flu? Are your knees and back safe from aches and do your sinuses and chest have the flu too? The entire body is sick when any part of it is infected. The entire body. Every infection. Now let's face it. We all sin. We all carry this disease and we exhibit its symptoms. There is one sinless man here at Adat. He's the one who was born of a virgin two millennia ago. The rest of us though, not so much. Given that the best of us is a sinner, can we treat this disease? Can we put it into remission? Or even eliminate it from the body altogether? Isaiah addressed that issue in today's Haftarah. He promises to the object of the text that even though he faces punishment for his sins, his relationship with our God is secure. It's commonly read on a national scale, where Isaiah is talking to Israel, but I think it would be just as easily read as applying to you 
or you or you or me. The individual believer whose Lord is Hashem, whose husband is Adonai. You've sinned, and there are consequences for that sin. Physical consequences, financial consequences, supernatural and spiritual consequences. But through it all, your God is faithful and compassionate and secure. The firm foundation of the universe upon whom you can absolutely depend to forgive your sin because he has promised it and his promises are unshakable. So in a sense, the disease of sin was cured on the cross. The greatest consequence of sin, the eternal separation between ourselves and our Creator, has been bridged. The great penalty abolished. There's a tremendous difference, though, between eliminating sin and forgiving sin. Though your sins be as scarlet, they be white as snow, but they're still there. Now, if your experience is anything like mine, then at the moment of your salvation, you became acutely aware of your sin. You recognized the sin in your life, and you repented of it. You felt Adonai's forgiveness cleansing you, and your life was changed. But don't you still sin? I do. Sadly, the verse that could best define much of my life is Romans 7.15. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. That's Paul talking. Paul, who is the model for believers that believers have held up for the last two millennia. Paul, who is held up as the example of how to be Christ-like when we are not like Christ. That what I hate is what I do. If Paul has that problem, how can any of the rest of us avoid it? I know what sin is. The more I study God's law, the more I'm convicted of sin. The more I appreciate the, the grace because I know how much I sin. But still, I don't stop. You see, there's a reason why it's called the walk of faith. We are all walking towards perfection. But as long as we're here in this world, we're not there yet. We continue to grow towards being like our Messiah, and that's encouraging. At the same time, we fail to be like our Messiah, and that's discouraging. But our Haftar reading today is just one of a plethora of messages where God reassures us that he sees our failures and still loves us. He knows that we sin, and he sees past that sin, covering it with the sacrifice of the cross. So what do we do with this conundrum? We have the standard of perfection, and we continually miss the mark. Historically, people have fallen into two camps. Either they judge themselves and those around them so harshly for every sin they notice, that all joy is lost in the loving relationship between creator and creation. Others ignore any reference to sin. They blind themselves in the veil of what's called cheap grace. They figure that sin is covered, why worry about it? Paul had something to say on that also. Shall we sin more so that grace may abound? God forbid. 
Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 5 demonstrates that judgment continues in the age of grace. Not judgment as in punishment. Not judgment as in telling your friends and neighbors they're going to hell. Not judgment as in saying you're good and you're bad. But judgment as a daily exercise of choosing to be as righteous as we can. Even on the days when that's really not very righteous at all. This balance is the precarious walk of faith. We recognize sin and we judge it, while knowing that sinlessness is unattainable. We we recognize grace and gratefully accept it, while knowing that grace by its very nature is what we don't deserve. On the other hand, if we were meant to judge nothing, then why is such a huge percentage of scripture devoting to telling us what is right and what is wrong? 2 Timothy 2.15, a verse we all know. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. This is what we can judge. Truth and falsehood we can discern. Whether or not a particular action or attitude contravenes God's word, we can discern this. Whether or not we are acting within the bounds of our own conscience and our understanding of Torah, we can discern. And the more we study God's word, the more accurately we can discern these things. We do not, however, judge the heart of those around us. Only God can truly know the heart. We can barely know our own heart, let alone that of the person sitting on the outside of the room. It's not our place to decide that someone is or is not a believer. I have met some people who believe some really bizarre theologies, who do things that I would never accept as a normal behavior or practice. I can't judge whether or not they have a relationship with God. That's between them and God. I can correct them on what Scripture says. I can discuss different forms of practice and different interpretations of what Scripture says but it's not my place to say you're not a believer because you don't believe like I do. Mother Teresa and Dietrich Bonhoeffer ate ham sandwiches. Would you suggest that either of them had less relationship with the Almighty than you do? Believe it or not, whether they did or didn't isn't any business of ours. You have enough issues in your own life that need improvement. That's exactly why Adonai gave us this gift of the month of Elul. Annually, we have the opening of the book, the Day of Atonement. All these things are coming up, the Days of Awe. We're not ready for them. I shouldn't say that. I'm judging you all. I'm not ready for them. We have this month's rule to take these small exercises we talked about. Slowly build up our compassion. Make small changes in your life that you can tolerate that will bring you closer to the standard that God has set for us. Take this month to make every day stop and look at yourself. Be brutally honest in what you look at. Be forgiving and compassionate in what you look at at the same time. 
And look at the things you can change between now and Yom Teruah. What small changes can you make in your life to be more the servant of God that you want to be? Now, the Bible holds up the standard of perfection, and it is absolute. You'll even find a call for us to meet that standard. In Matthew 5.48, uh, someone read that real quickly. Matthew. Sword drills, yay! You all thought you were back in Sunday school, didn't you? Matthew 5.48, who's first? Josie. Okay. Is God perfect? Really? Is God perfect? Okay. I'm really hoping you all knew that answer. We see a call to be perfect like God from Yeshua himself. Is Yeshua perfect? Okay. So we have a perfect person calling us to be like a perfect God in perfection. This reflects a line from last week's parasha, Deuteronomy 18.13 which I don't have off the top of my head and I don't want to take time to read it. If our Lord expected you to achieve perfection, there would be no need for so many passages in Scripture, though, telling us what to do when we sin. He would just say, be perfect. This is how you do it. Don't do anything else. You and I are enjoined to be perfect. But God makes it clear that he really doesn't expect us to achieve perfection. What he expects from us is to turn our hearts to Him. To seek Him and walk in that path. Not to be at the end of the path, but to walk in that path. He expects to try to be a little better than we were yesterday, or last year, or a minute ago. That you can do. That is within your reach and your control. Still, you won't always do it. You'll miss the mark and backslide. And God will still love and forgive you anyway. As Isaiah illustrated in today's reading, your relationship with your Creator is secure. As Paul illustrated, you can still strive for righteousness. Accept it. Keep on trucking and just keep doing the best you can. You may not be unblemished, a perfect sacrifice, but still make yourself a sacrifice. This is still your reasonable service to God. Amen. I have no idea where we're going next.